power on. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo! The man of the hour, well, should I say the man of two hours, is here for the hour of power, baby. It is none other than Sovereign Tech, and you are being joined by the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, ready to get it all on this week. And we've got a lot of tech news to get into, including, as I often love to do, uh, even though, well, actually, no, I don't love to do it. Why? Because there's so many things that I'm right about on this fucking show that I don't want to be right about. But it's tech news that's going to prove points that we have made for some time. And we will get into that. But since this is whew, my show, baby, I reserve the right to, uh, well, frankly, talk about whatever I want to talk about whenever I want to talk about it. Even though usually I keep all of that in the segment at the end, the climax, where I talk about whatever I want to talk about. But sometimes, sometimes news comes across that is just so... Holy shit, or maybe unholy shit, that I have to talk about it right at the opener. And, uh, you know, I I usually save entertainment, that kind of conversation, even though I think it has a completely relevant place in any tech show. I usually save that for when I do TIE Fighter Renegades, which you can find on this feed as well for Sovereign Tech uh, that I do with my man, Rob. And I'm sure we'll talk about this then when we get into uh, July's TIE Fighter Renegades. In fact, I guarantee you it's going to come up uh, along with uh, some other things that I might mention is uh, if you just give me a moment. But this is news that's actually also kind of relevant to tech as well, because it's really one of the things that I have to admit totally got me into computers as a kid. Now, I have had uh, basically computers in my life my whole life. Uh, actually, this is going to be relevant when we get into our main story as well. Not about me, but about, say, the latest generation uh, of human beings on this planet, that being Gen Z. Yes, we are going to talk about it. Yes, it is actually interesting and not necessarily derogatory, at least not coming from me. As much as often it seems I do <laughs> engage in that kind of banter. But I've always had computers. I mean, uh, you know, I remember I, the old uh, the old uh, T-1000. I remember the, of course, I used the Commodore 64 for so much of my life. Um, I remember the old Atari computers that we had. I remember the uh, Apple laptop that we had with two disk drives on it. Disk drives, you understand. <laughs> the big boys. You know, not we're, we're not even talking PowerBooks or iBooks. I mean, it was long before any of that. Um, I mean, I've just, I've always, always had them. But 
you need to have, I mean, here's the thing is that granted, while it's interesting, you know, I mean, it, actually, here's a great thing to do. And a lot of people either don't remember this uh, or they just had no idea or whatever. Either way, great to look into to get the refresher or to realize, wow, what a world we live in. Go back to the late 1980s and the early 1990s and look at the price of computers. And I think you will be in shock at just how fucking expensive these things used to be. I mean, there's a reason the Commodore 64 took over the world for a good while, because in comparison to its uh, quote unquote competition, um, you know, it was so inexpensive, but computers used to cost, cost a lot of money. So, you know, there was certainly that barrier to entry, but bottom line being is that, you know, a lot of things that you want to do and that people do with computers now, uh, or at least a lot of things minus perhaps the internet, you know, has been possible for decades. So people always needed really a reason, right. To start using a personal computer of some kind. Smartphones is a whole other animal. And that's not necessarily part of the conversation here, even though I think it may be an interesting point to bring up in potential plot lines for what I'm about to discuss. So anyway, um, the thing is, and I've talked about this many times, what got me into technology? What got me into using a computer in the first place? Right. And that really was, I mean, it, it, there's, there's a few things. Okay. But one of the, probably the biggest one was that it was, and I had a typewriter as well, by the way, but the fact that I had basically unlimited paper and unlimited ink, quote unquote, uh, on the computer screen. And I have been writing basically since I was like six years old, I'm not saying I wrote anything good or ever have, but I'm just saying that I've been writing. I've wanted to be an author and so on for that long. And so that's always been part of the equation for me. And a computer just made the most sense. Right. And even back then we had things that were just fancy word processors. They weren't even technically, uh, you know, PCs, but it wasn't just that there were other things. Um, I mean, certainly another major impetus for me getting into computers as a very, very young man and wanting to actually use them was video games. Right. And particularly like Star Trek games, like Star Trek 25th anniversary and Star Trek judgment rights. I mean, there was just no experience like that on consoles. You had to have a PC and I was there for it. And, and to say nothing of X-Wing and TIE fighter and, you know, all those classic games, those are certainly a big part of it as well. But one of the things that really always gave me, while those are very practical things that you can do and certainly do fill you with a sense of amazement, the thing with computers that really made me look at them and especially interconnected computers, i.e. the internet, that really gave me a sense of awe was not chat rooms, even though I had my fun with those on Prodigy. Yeah. But the movie Tron... Okay. Now the movie Tron, a absolute classic from 1982, uh, made by Disney. I mean, this was, you know, for a lot of people, even though technically it wasn't the first film to have CGI, a lot of people see it sort of as the first movie with CGI. I mean, really it's just, it's a movie that's so unique in that it's trying to show you what life might be like inside of a computer and it anthropomorphizes like programs and everything. It's, 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 there's no other film like the original Tron. Now it had a sequel come out, which I consider to be one of, I mean, both of them, I consider to be uh, some of the best movies ever made. Uh, Tron Legacy in 2010, which I easily consider one of the best movies of all time. And not only that, but also it is proof that you don't have to do a remake. You don't have to do, I mean, remake and reboot and th these kinds of terms or reimagining. 
they get kind of uh, interchanged. And so I'll try to be clear with saying remake, but basically is that you can take your classic actors, you can take your classic characters and so on from a film, slap them into a movie, you know, modern film, and, and it can actually be great. Now, Tron Legacy is largely remembered for its tremendous, and I'm fairly sure or fairly certain that it is an award-winning soundtrack by Daft Punk. And it is a it is easily also just not only one of the best movies ever, but that's easily one of the greatest soundtracks ever. In fact, it might be one of the most hummed pieces of uh, or, or collection of, of sounds uh, that I have in my repertoire because I will often and Ellen often hears me, you know, humming uh, the theme from Tron Legacy. I mean, it's just it's that big of a deal. But Tron is just that core for me, right? Because again, it was the it was the the medium. Although it's just a movie, it was also a storybook and a golden book that had a record with and everything that I listened to as a kid. But regardless, it was the movie, it was the medium that gave me a sense of awe around computers and networking. So it's very core um, when it comes to that. Star Trek had a big hand in all of that as well. Uh, I kind of already said that, but it's certainly even more so. And I've brought up that point many times that when you ask a lot of people, especially uh, people say born pre 96, uh, that they, you know, what got you into, you know, touching a computer, what got you into tech and so on. And most people will say star Trek, like the, the, they'll just say, yeah, that, that, you know, the idea that technology could thrust us in such ways, you know, we, we were all for it, but regardless, Tron is a big deal. Now Tron legacy, uh, did not do so well in theaters, did not hit all the, you know, all the metrics that I think Disney was looking for. I have other theories around this, but bottom line uh, is that Tron legacy was not the success that Tron was, or that, that Disney was hoping it would be. Now, I think the reason that it wasn't a success is because it's actually a good fucking movie. And so not everybody would put their ass in the seat to watch it, right? Because the more you make something appeal to the lowest common denominator, the less chance of genius, genius and brilliance and uh, you know, innovative and interesting art you have. Right. Because, I mean, to to appeal to the most people, you have to say the least in whatever you're presenting. And that's true for, you know, movies, books, music, comics. I mean, you go down the list of, of the of, uh, of the medium. And that's why I think Tron Legacy is partly why it's so great is because not everybody got it. And that almost points at the fa- I mean, that's almost a, a feather in its cap. Right. And again, it does show that you can successfully do a sequel. In fact, even 25 years later, almost to the day, you can successfully do a sequel that uh, that plays right off of the original. You don't have to pull off a Ghostbusters where you're doing a remake or whatever else. You can actually pay homage and fealty to the source material. And I think Disney really did that. And then they made a little cartoon called Tron Uprising, which went for about a season, which I thought was fantastic. Basically, this all is happening around 2012, 2013. And what I have always said that I thought occurred here was not that Tron wasn't doing some kind of money for for Disney. Otherwise, I don't think they would have bothered with doing the, the cartoon of Tron Uprising. I think what happened is, is that they bought Star Wars and then they basically said, okay, we don't need to do Tron anymore, right? Similar to Paramount and CBS saying, well, Star Wars movies are getting made now. We don't really have to do, you know, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films anymore because those were basically, you know, uh, uh, Star Wars in Star Trek's clothing. But now, and 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 this, I think this proves my my point, and I'm sure we'll talk about this with Rob, and I want to hear his insights because he, 
he always has brilliant insights. Um, but I, I think this proves my point that Tron, again, folks, we got tech news to get into. Don't worry about that. But now that Star Wars has effectively been really, really hurt, right? And it has with the sequel trilogy. Now that that's been hurt, Disney's like, uh, okay, we got to count on something other than Star Wars and we can't just make all of our money on Marvel because people are probably getting sick of those films too. And so they are going back to maybe one of what I think was really their original plan was that they were planning on Tron being their major, one of their major franchises, uh, you know, to make money whenever there isn't a Marvel movie out more or less. Okay. And I mean, I think that this is, this is pretty key because you, you have to understand that the reason that there are a lot of uh, reboots, reimaginings, remakes, and all this other shit in the entertainment industry are two. One is, is that yes, they have run out of creative juices. Uh, actually there's three reasons. One is that they've run out of creative juices pretty clearly. Uh, and they won't even let writers be creative. In fact, we have a lot of evidence for that. Go look up J. Michael Straczynski's Twitter and you'll find out about why he is suddenly getting on Patreon. Not because he can't look, people will hire him right and left to write shit in Hollywood. He doesn't have a problem getting stuff, you know, passed through in Hollywood. The problem is, is that what he writes gets watered down. And so he wants to make stuff independently. Right. And kudos to him. I mean, fuck you made Babylon five, baby. I'll support you anyway. You know, six ways to Sunday. All right. Now, so there's that. Okay. There's, there's that, uh, they are out of creative juices and kind of related is that they won't allow for real creativity to flourish because movies are at such a budget, uh, now just like video game, the video game industry is running into the same thing. Um, they're at such a budget now that basically, you know, you have to get so many billions of people to see your movie just to break even. Okay. And so you can't afford to be creative and like these, the studios can't afford to be that creative anymore. Right. It, it just doesn't work. Um, the third part or the third reason is that you need to, because everything seems so tin plated. In fact, this is going to play well into our, our story of the week, which also has to, or our main story, which also has to do with some Bitcoin. Um, the idea that, that everything just feels again. Yeah. It feels tin plated. It feels cheap unless it has some kind of historicity, unless it has some kind of, you know, something, some not just nostalgia, but like that you can point back to, no, this is real because this has been around for decades. Right. And that's a very easy way to, to buy into some trust in the movie going public or in the viewing public. Um, so you have all of that going on and that's where Tron kind of wins because everybody remembers that, Oh, it's this really weird film and it's so visually gripping and visually unique. And it still is to this day, even Tron legacy, while it, it did the job, uh, you know, it doesn't have the same exact look and I didn't expect it to, nor did I necessarily want it to, because that, that old look is based around, well, I mean, you know, they would have loved it if it looked better too, but anyway, I, I still think it looks great. I'm not knocking it at all. And they, they did tremendous work and it's still a gorgeous, uh, a gorgeous style, uh, on that film. But point being is that everybody, even if they've never seen Tron, you know, Tron, when you see it, like, like it, it's just that fucking unique. Right. And so it's an easy thing to, to get people to pay attention. Like, Oh, oh, I've heard of that. Oh, I remember that. Oh yeah. That's that weird shit. Oh yeah. That's enough to get people talking about it and maybe get their asses in the seat. Okay. Now all the other reasons that I described, because in case I don't think I've even said it yet, but here it goes. Disney has officially, and I mean, official coming from a Disney exec was at Mitchell Lieb, uh, has said 
that they are making Tron 3. It is in production. They are going. Uh, apparently, Jared Leto might be attached. That's about the worst news out of this whole thing. I, I Jared Leto is a very odd character, not in a good way. Uh, I don't trust that guy. I think the guy is very, he's very weird. Uh, and I say weird in like kind of a, an occult, strange sort of, I, I don't want to go down that road, but but I don't like it when he's attached to shit. I hated his Joker. Um, actually, I, I pretty much despise just about everything he does. Uh, but anyway, so J- Jared Leto, that, that kind of sucks, but I'll admit he'd probably make a pretty great clue if you're, if, you know, if you're going to bring him as, in as a character. Uh, the supposed exact quotes um, they're hoping that Joseph Kaczynski comes back to direct it, who directed Tron Legacy. I think that's great news. They are looking to get Daft Punk back to do the score again. That's exactly what you want, because that's the thing that people remember the most from Tron Legacy. Uh, I, I mean, I still, again, I think that's a great movie. You just got to give it a shot. And most people never even bothered. Um, they're also saying, I guess it's going to be more of a sequel than a reboot. Okay, that's good. If it's going to be more of a sequel, stick with that. Uh, parts of the Tron Legacy cast could return. Um, I mean, Olivia Wilde, bring it on, you know, absolutely. Uh, and there's the chance that it could, I mean, these are rumors, not all of this is coming from Mitchell Lieb, but there's the chance that it could be, they could be reviving a script because there was a script before for Tron three, apparently called Tron Ascension, uh, where the grid as in, you know, the gaming grid or, you know, the world of the computers, uh, ends up invading the real world. And there's like some character named Ares involved. Um, so that's. I mean, I'll just say it. I'm fucking excited. You know, I mean, I really, really am. Uh, the part that I think is going to be interesting, and I kind of pointed at this earlier, is that now, you know, even more so than in 2010, granted, we've been dealing with, um, you know, smartphones really ever since 2007 with the iPhone. Um, but I get the sense that the smartphone could be a major player in this. And, you know, that can be either a good or a bad thing. If it has an anti-smartphone message, right, because that's how perhaps everybody comes in from the grid, like all these, you know, maybe Clue comes back or I don't know, however they, or maybe this character Aries, you know, maybe they use smartphones to like uh, to invade the earth. Uh, I could could be very, very on board with that. And that would fit right in line uh, in a very abstract way with a lot of messaging that we talk about on Sovereign Tech. Um, so I could see it. I mean, and, and that's the thing too, is that both the movie Tron and Tron legacy, while Tron is really just a visual stunner, um, and doesn't necessarily, I mean, it gives you a sense of, wow, the possibilities with the computer, it certainly gives you that abstract sense or the possibilities with technology. Uh, and I think that's overall a winning message, even though, again, it doesn't have like a very heavy plot uh, necessarily of any kind, but Tron legacy had the beautiful message of it was all about, I mean, it really pushed open source. I mean, so many concepts I've quoted Tron legacy. I, I hundreds of times on this show over the decade, over the past decade. I mean, I, I really, you know, well, we've been going almost a decade. In fact, it's a decade since uh, Tron legacy came out. I mean, I've quoted it so many times because it, it was totally on board with open source, uh, you know, making fun of just putting a new number on the box and selling it to people as new software. Um, the concept of that, that, you know, there is perfection is, is, is an imperfection, right? The world is, is perfectly imperfect. And that's a good thing. There is no such thing as the perfect system and so on. All these great concepts that are in that film. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'll admit it. I'm excited for this one. I, I think that there's the chance that Disney might just be able to do something really interesting and right with this. And it's not uninteresting to bring up 
that, you know, there's a lot of rumors going around right now that the Star Wars, basically you have multiple camps in Disney that are like in control of Star Wars and that there's like the George Lucas camp and there's the Kathleen Kennedy camp and that basically the Kathleen Kennedy camp is getting kicked out or being shoved out and the George Lucas camp is taking over and they're the ones behind the Mandalorian, which is actually great. Uh, we've reviewed that um, on on this podcast uh, or, well, I think it was on TIE Fighter Renegades, but anyway. Um, you know, if, if there are people in Disney who are finally starting to get it, okay, no, you know, we need to appeal to the moviegoers that are willing to maybe buy some merchandise, see the movie more than once and so on, and not be so much about perhaps asses and seats or think about a much longer play or stop trying to go after unproven demographics and so on. Uh, this could be a very, very, this really could be a great film. Like there, there's a real chance for that. Kind of like Dune might be in the same vein. We'll see. I, I, I don't know. I think I talked about that a couple episodes ago. That, uh, that Dune is one where I am cautiously optimistic about it. With Tron 3, I guess I'd say I'd feel the same, that I'm cautious, cautiously optimistic. But there is a genuine opportunity, which probably means it won't happen, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say it. There is the genuine opportunity that this message could have tremendous uh, abstract themes about technology in the interconnected world that we live in. And if even if they are trying to appeal to Gen Z, that might be a positive when we get into our main story for this week. But before we get into that, I do have, um, I do have some other things that I, some other little stories that I want to get to in the foreplay here, but we will pick up that conversation during the main story. So we have got to talk about, well, first let me say this. If you want to carry on the conversation around Tron three, uh, a great place that that is happening uh, or where it will happen, I guarantee you, is in the tel Sovereign Tech Telegram group. If you want to join that, link is in the show notes. Just look for the Telegram link. It'll pop you right in as long as you have a Telegram account and you are there and you are in for just a, I mean, some of the most brilliant and people helping each other out with tech questions and all kinds of questions. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's such a fantastic group. I love it. Um, concerns around Telegram. We certainly, I understand the, the ones that have come up um, and I am not avoiding those at all. Uh, because I will, I will defend no software. <laughs> okay. I, I call spades spades all day long on this show. And that's part of the reason why I think it's so popular because I have, uh, I have no loyalties or, or affiliation with, with any, any camp whatsoever. Uh, I am, I like to think of myself as an individual of individuals, but regardless, um, yes, I'm aware of those and I will, you know, certainly we will cover them as I collect more information on them. So, but you can, I think signals tweeted about it and some other things, but, uh, actually I thought signals in a little bit of bad form on that, but regardless, let's keep rocking. Uh, we are going to talk about a little bit of bad form, I suppose on the part of Mozilla, um, Firefox is going to be, they are presently testing using Comcast DNS resolver. Uh, by default, um, the <laughs> I know other podcasts have talked about this as well, but you know, I want to, I want to throw in my two cents, um, on the affair. Now I regularly, in fact, I think in episode 380, uh, I, we, we got into a question during the, uh, important messages segment. We got into a question from a listener about, you know, what web browser should I be using today? You know, or what actually it was what her kids should even be start using. Cause she realized that into the future, you know, like what, what their kids start using now, they're probably going to be stuck in going into the future. So she wants to make sure she gets the right one. Uh, and Firefox, as far as being a recommendation, I mean, I generally recommend Firefox across the board. Um, generally, you know, I mean, I said that, well, it'd be great, you know, if everybody wanted to jump on Tor browser, 
you know, or, or even like I said, I wish that Vivaldi was open source because I really think that's a solid, solid option and it likely will become open source in the future. But yeah, it's a challenge. And now with this from Firefox, uh, this is I mean, now, granted, if you are, you know, technically minded enough, this can be resolved, but most people aren't. And, you know, the tyranny of the default, which we've talked about on this show before, an idea from Steve Gibson, of course, uh, who, you know, that he's been a proponent of where basically whatever the default options are or the default software is, that's what the bulk of people are going to use. Uh, because the tyranny of the default is a real thing. This is a problem. So I'm not necessarily rescinding my recommendation of Mozilla Firefox, but I am going to bolster a recommendation that I made years ago when this was first launched. Uh, when we get towards, uh, you know, towards the end of what's going on here. So initially Mozilla had started switching over and part of this has to do with them deploying DOH. Um, they had switched over to where Cloudflare, okay. Which is their 1.1.1.1, you know, their DNS resolver that they were going to use that as the default DNS resolver in Firefox. Now that's not a terrible option at all. I think that's largely better than Google's DNS or certainly your ISP's default DNS, which is what, you know, web browsers used to just go to. Um, I think it's a better option than that, but part of the reason that people were switching, okay, to, you know, to other, uh, you know, DNS resolvers was because they, and the DNS resolver is effectively what, well, okay. Think of it like the old phone system, right? Where you had, you have phone numbers. Okay. In this case, that would be, you know, your, your average web address, right? Your domain name. Okay. Your URL. So that would be the phone number, the DNS. And that that's a DNS domain name server. Okay. Right. Well, anyway, so the DNS is like the phone book of the internet. The resolver is effectively like an op is like the operator. Remember operators that used to be a thing. <laughs> I'm sure it still is in some way. But the, so, you know, the operator used to be a human being and, you know, certainly like as is the nature with many humans, there are some people better at their jobs than others. And you have uh, operators that are, that were very quick at switching you over. And then you have ones who might've been new at the job or whatever. And, and so that's why, you know, you wanted options, right? Uh, I mean, not that you could choose what operator was working for you by any stretch, but with, you know, a DNS resolver, you do have the option of choosing which one, but people were switching over because the DNS resolvers that your average ISP were offering over the years, uh, were, were slow because they, they didn't really bother. They didn't really care. And then you had something like open DNS come out and then it gets into, well, can we encrypt, uh, this traffic? And yes, you can. And that's part of the reason people go to things like, uh, you know, why they would switch to Cloudflare and so on. Um, you know, Google's DNS uh, resolver, that would effectively be uh, faster than just about anybody else's. Of course, once you start encrypting the resolver, then the time it takes you to go from website to website in your web browser is going to slow down. So that's part of the reason that people didn't bake uh, encryption in, in the first place, because especially, you know, years and years ago, because internet speeds were slow enough anyway. So, um, you know, for, for Firefox to want to beef up security a bit by going with Cloudflare, fine. And they basically had like a trusted, I'm trying to think what the, uh, TRR trusted recur recursive resolver, I think is the name of it. And basically they wanted a DNS resolver that, you know, was, was going to be privacy respecting because that's, you know, Mozilla and Firefox's MO, right? And so again, Cloudflare, fine choice. Going with Comcast though, 
Now, Mozilla came out because there was an uproar around this, rightfully so. Mozilla came out and said, okay, you got to understand, it's only going to, this is only going to be on Comcast uh, servers that we are going to default to, you know, uh, to, to, to Comcast DNS resolver. If you're on other networks, if you don't use Comcast, which, I mean, let's be clear, folks, I mean, they're just shy of almost an internet monopoly in the United States. Who the fuck doesn't use it? So it might as well be the default everywhere. And that doesn't even get into, because here's the thing. So if you're not on Comcast uh, lines, as it were, then it will default to Cloudflare. Okay. It'll do an automatic switching. There's an inherent problem there too, but, um, well, let's talk about that. And that is, is that there's going to be a time where when you are switching that for, for, I mean, and I don't know how brief of a, a, you know, amount of time this is going to be, but where Cloudflare traffic or, you know, Cloudflare traffic and Comcast DNS resolver traffic are going, I mean, both of them are going to be able to collect it. That's going to be shared for some amount of time. And that ultimately, I mean, you never want, you know, data going to multiple parties, even if it is Cloudflare, it's still going to be going to Comcast for a little bit, even when you're switching over to Cloudflare and vice versa. And then Comcast. Now, Mozilla said that Comcast, oh, no, no, they've they've met all of our qualifications for this TRR. They're going to be privacy respecting. And I'm like. You know, in, in, in which alternate universe is Comcast privacy respecting at all. Like what evidence does any consumer have to believe that? And I don't think Mozilla is being very forthcoming with what exact evidence that, I mean, how do you, I mean, yes, you could say that's very difficult to prove ultimately. Well, yes it is, but that's why you don't trust anybody, right? DTNO, you know, trust no one or or not DTNO, but TNO. (laughs) It's that that's a concept in security folks. <laughs> um, so I, I just think this is an absolute fail. Like, I don't know who thought this was going to be a good idea. Uh, probably what's happening here. Okay. Is Mozilla is making as a nonprofit, of course, but they're probably getting somewhat of a, a pretty good payday of, of a type. Okay. From, you know, from Comcast to have this set. I mean, it's the same reasons why they have Google, you know, as the default web or as the default search engine, right? Even though absolutely they should instantly be going to DuckDuckGo or, you know, some option um, along those lines, but they don't. Now, I guess to play a little devil's advocate, okay, let's say it's more than just the funding thing, right? Okay, now there, there's there's a relatively easy solution to all of this, and I will certainly tell you what that is, but let's keep rocking. So, uh, a couple versions ago, Firef- I think, uh, Firefox implemented DOH, which is basically DNS over HTTPS. Now, this has caused, as brilliant an idea as this is, because this is, again, encrypting more traffic, encrypting more data. So that's a good thing, right? Yes, it is. But it is also flooding a lot of servers and creating massive problems with IT departments. Um, and basically, you know, the Internet as it stands is not prepared for DOH. Okay, now... You can read up on me. If I think of it, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to do a nice technical breakdown of DOH. But I think part of why this is happening is that basically for DOH to be a thing, Mozilla needs the, the, for lack of a better term, needs the, how about the horsepower? I was going to say firepower. They need the horsepower that Comcast has, okay, with their servers. 
And that's why, you know, probably why they are going that I going with that. I bet that there is something in the protocol for DOH that is actually might even be flooding Cloudflare a bit. And that's a bit of a problem. Um, this is something that, you know, the internet needs to get more encrypted and that's great. And that's something that basically, you know, needs to be resolved going forward. And I'm sure there are technical challenges that eventually one day will get resolved or perhaps ultimately we could just get used to web pages, not loading as fast. Wouldn't that be nice if people could, I don't know, have some goddamn patience, but I don't know that that's exactly going to happen. Um, but regardless, uh, this is, this is not good because I have no interest in Comcast collecting my data. I mean, the whole reason that I use VPNs and why, and, and that's certainly a, you know, a bit of a resolver for this or resolution for this, um, you know, or why I use another DNS resolver that I still don't exactly understand why Firefox isn't talking to, unless it is part of that speed and load issue that I just, that I just briefly mentioned. Um, I use quad nine. Okay. As my DNS resolver, I don't use Cloudflare. I've recommended cloud nine across the board. The instant it came out, I talked about it and I sang its praises and I continue to do so. And I set basically every device computer that I have at the OS level, at every level that it is needed to get entered. I make sure that, you know, my DNS resolver nine, 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 nine. That's why it's called quad nine, four nines. Um, now, some people have the concern, and I understand as soon as you see the three letters IBM, you sweat. I do too. I, I totally get it. Okay. Here's the thing. So because um, IBM, so because it's backed by uh, IBM, Packet Clearinghouse, and the Global Cyber Alliance, the difference between Quad9 and most other DNS resolvers, including really Cloudflare, I don't believe that they do this, is that... Um, Quad nine will automatically block domains that they know have been associated with malicious activity. That's a good thing, right? I mean, there's the encryption. Yes. And, but it is a privacy and security set centric DNS resolver. That's why I use it across the board. Okay. That's why I recommend you use it. Now, do your pages load? I don't know, a couple seconds slower or something like that. Yeah, maybe hell, even if it was 10 seconds slower. So what? <laughs> you know, for the price of all that security, I will take it any day of the week. So now with, as far as the IBM concern, I do want to address that a little bit. You have, you got to understand why did IBM get on board with quad nine? I think partly it is similar to the reasons that they ended up buying red hat. They know that the trajectory, the direction that the future is going with the interconnected world that this kind of technology is just necessary. Like it's, it's not even a matter of them doing anything evil. They just know if they want to exist, if they want their business to continue, if they want to provide uh, the kind of security that a, that especially in the enterprise space where they're going to do some fancy new red hat installs, right? Of Linux. If they are going to be a part of that, they need to be on top of and show numbers and metrics to these businesses who are buying all new fancy IBM shit and say, Oh no, no, look, we are providing this amount of security. We can provide this amount of security. Why? Because IBM hardware and software might default to quad nine, or at the very least they can say that we are a part of the solution. We are the reason X. Okay. I mean, I think it's similar to Microsoft and, and, and GitHub, even though, you know, I certainly have my qualms with some stuff that GitHub has done lately, but overall it's, it's Microsoft realizing, Hey, guess what? Open source is just, it's the future <laughs> and we can't do anything about it. 
So we might as well buy into it, you know? And, and, and that's, and that's what they did. So I, you know, there are cases you always want to be skeptical when tech giants get involved, but I really do. I do think that IBM is in this because it's something that they just know needs to exist and it didn't. And so they, they tossed money at it and ultimately it will make them more money because it can make their numbers just look those couple percentage points better when it comes to security, when they're doing an enterprise sales call. So, uh, I mean, you know, again, quad nine, anybody can use it. It's not like it's, it's, uh, you know, specific to or proprietary to IBM by no means. Um, but the fact that it's there and that IBM is making sure that it's there again, still ultimately, you know, uh, uh, helps them on their bottom line. But thankfully we get to perhaps like a remora to the shark. We get to, uh, uh appreciate the benefits as well. So, <laughs> I'm not giving IBM credit. I'm just saying there it is. Uh, you know, it's something that we all need. So in resolution of the resolver switch over to quad nine. Okay. Um, just, just force that shit, force it in every, at every level on your devices. Okay. Do not, do not let this horse shit go down with, with, you know, using Comcast DNS resolver. I, I don't, that's a company where I don't believe for a second Okay. I mean, they're going to, yeah. Why are they working with, with Mozilla? Because, oh, they get to collect all that data. Even if they don't share it with other people, they get all that data. I mean, and, and Comcast is part of such a gigantic multinational conglomerate. I mean, or, or well, it in and of itself is basically a multinational conglomerate. Like, yeah, they, they can, they can make money off of the data and just keeping it in house. So of course they're willing to do this, but that's not good for you. So switch over to quad nine. If you haven't yet, I really, really recommend that. Just go to the website and they give you all the instructions for, for quad nine on, on how to do that. Um, I had some other stories. What other stories did I have here for? Yeah, we don't have to talk about those right now. We've been talking long enough for the foreplay. I was going to get into like the shutdown of the Microsoft stores and, and mixer and all that. I can save that for, for another episode. I'll be right back. More. We, we got to get into our main story. I'll be right back with some more sovereign tech. Woo. Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside, and not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. The main story. Ooh, it is time for the main story. Man, I'm not letting that music fade out, am I? But who the hell cares? Because we have got... Well, as I said at the top of the show, this is a subject that we brought up almost 200 episodes ago. Or really, it's a follow-up. 
was something that at the time it was considered debatable whether or not it was real, whether or not it was legit. And at the time we were talking about a video that the intercept, which actually the story we're going to talk about is from the intercept as well. Um, that the intercept leaked that they got of a Pentagon, basically a wargaming video that was going to, that at the time, which I guess maybe that would have been around 2016, something like that. When episode 200 came out was showing a potential future in America specifically, but in America, uh, I mean, and it was, yes, to some degree it was referencing around the world. I think a lot of people missed the, the, the fact that it was also describing America and it was a military, uh, uh, training video effectively. Um, but this video showed off and, and I, pl- I think I played the audio from it and everything in, in the, in episode 200 of sovereign tech, this video was laying out what was considered by the Pentagon to be a nightmare scenario where a decade in the future from then, which isn't too far off from now, but also falls into a similar timeline that we're going to talk about with this more recent uh, war game. So the idea is, is that they predicted in the future and basically in the 2020s, but in the future that there would be uh, entire alternative electronic, shall we say, markets and currencies. Of course, this was talking about, you know, the threat of Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies in general, blockchain technologies in general, and peer-to-peer technologies in general to where these things operate in such a way that the military can't easily shut it down. Now, like I said, it's amazing that nobody really pinpointed or pointed out, even the intercept, I don't think really touched on it, that the Pentagon was basically wargaming that the military would have to be in the streets in America. And I don't think they just meant the national guard. In fact, we're pretty much hundred percent sure that it didn't just mean the national guard, which, you know, as far as, uh, at the time when episode, when I did episode 200, I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, that's ridiculous that military would be, you know, not the national guard that the, you know, traditional military, the standing army, et cetera, would operate within the United States. They're only meant to operate, uh, outside of their bases, uh, you know, on, on foreign soil. Well, now that's not so crazy, is it, you know, come past or post June, 2020. So this video or this, uh, this other, again, that leak was debatable, but with this, uh, war game, which is specifically called the 2018 joint land, air and sea strategic special program or, or JLAS is what they're calling it. I think proves that that video was absolutely real, that that was totally a linked uh, or a leaked Pentagon training video, uh, for, you know, for military operations. So let's, let's get into this a bit here because this gets very generational, which I find to be, uh, interesting in a few respects. And I think there are some, some takeaways to go with here, but I mean, well, actually there's a lot of takeaways to go with here, but in some of it, frankly, is kind of hopeful. I don't like to use the word hope, but for lack of a better term, there we go. Anyway, let's read it here from the intercept. Uh, the story itself is from June 5th, 2020. Uh, Pentagon war game includes scenario for military response to domestic Gen Z rebellion. Again, domestic military response to a Gen Z rebellion. Um, I can imagine this 
story largely went under the radar, especially around June 5th, because at the time the protests and, uh, well, other showings in the United States were certainly, you know, well, I mean, they were just setting all the headlines ablaze, no pun intended. But let's, uh, anyway, let's read this here. In the face of, it's by Nick Terse, in the face of protests composed largely of young people, uh, which is what they're just referencing, what I referenced, the presence of America's military on the streets of major cities has been a controversial uh, development. But this isn't the first time that Generation Z, those born after 1996, has popped up on the Pentagon's radar. Documents obtained by The Intercept via the Freedom of Information Act revealed that a Pentagon war game called the, what we mentioned earlier, JLAS, offered a scenario in which members of Generation Z, driven by malaise and discontent, launch a Z-bellion. And that's with the letter Z and then the word, you know, and then bellion. So like rebellion, but Z-bellion. Almost sounds French, really, which that kind of fits. Anyway, uh, in America in the mid-2020s. Now, I mean, again, the time frame for this, that this Zebellion is describing, I, I think that leaked intercept video from 2016. And again, this was set up for 2018. I think that was in preparation for this very, like, I think it's all part of the same, uh, uh, you know, scenarios and preparation that the Pentagon is engaging in, that this is what they're really wondering about. And I would not be surprised if a lot of the recent crises again i think that there are multiple forces taking advantage of these crises not necessarily that the crises were manufactured but that you know there are groups taking advantage of it uh, i would not be surprised if there were some degree of these war games coming to light during uh recent crisis management by the u.s government but let's keep reading the story here the Zebellion uh, plot was a small part of JLAS 2018, which also featured scenarios involving Islamist militants in Africa, anti-capitalist extremists, and ISIS successors. Uh, by the way, real quick, you you can read some of the documents that you know that the Intercept uh, got their hands on, and I mean these exact terms. In fact, it's remarkable: <laughs> anti-capitalist extremist. You know, as as if somehow we have uh, what with the dictionary definition of capitalism right now, right? Not that I care about that term at all, uh, but it's just, it, it's outrageous. You know, something I really wish people would do. I really wish people would look at the cultural debates. Even, I mean, you could go back a hundred years if you want between Marxism and, or at this point you could go back about a hundred years uh, between Marxism and say capitalism right? These terms and really the cultural mores, ideas, and concepts around them, when you actually go back and read the, you know, the debates going on, say, even in the newspapers and whatever else, and this is true on the side of Russia, as well as the United States or the Western world, wouldn't call it the free world, would you? Uh, but anyway, <laughs> and I don't even know what Western means, but the debate between Marxism versus capitalism, like that whole concept, I mean, that was something so framed by the, well, the, the, the thought leaders in power. Okay. Not thought leaders as in like some guy who, who uh, I don't know, got kicked off of YouTube and Twitter uh, because he's a moron. I mean, uh, 
you know, I mean, there's people who like in every day are, are actual thought leaders that don't have any real power, even though they like to pretend that they do. And then there's the people who, you know, work for the Council on Foreign Relations. Right. And then those are people that I'm not saying they're good thought leaders, but those are people that actually might have some sway in things. But if you look at the the thought leaders in power, we'll call them that. Maybe that's uh, maybe that should become a new term like TLIPS. We could call them TLIPS. If you look at the way that, I mean, they basically were able to control, they were able to frame the debate between Marxism and capitalism. And basically what they, what they defined Marxism as just like what they define capitalism as both of those definitions are pure bullshit. I mean, I could, I could go on a hold side, hold side tangent here about this because I don't know that we're ever going to get to anything that reflects reality and perhaps personal freedom and liberty in reality with the English language, because it has been so controlled and bastardized and it continues to be controlled as we've talked about in recent episodes where no, you can't use this term today. Oh, you can't use that. And this gets demonized and so on. But not only that, the way that these terms get framed, the context that is given to them is not their dictionary definition. It's not what whoever maybe used the term first even has anything to mean and, and or even meant for it to mean. And this gets into, I mean, we could even say this within, well, let's say you're of the more libertarian bent uh, or you, you might like the term voluntary, uh, you know, voluntarist, right? I know there's a lot of people who are a big fan of that term. I think it's a nice term. I mean, it doesn't roll off the tongue very well. Neither does libertarian, but whatever. Fine term, uh, voluntarist. Now, the guy that came up with using the term voluntarist right, was Carl Watner. Now, he was explicit in that a voluntarist does not engage in electoral politics at all. Like they just don't. They, they are, they are going to play above the system. And hey, Carl Watner, baby, I am with you. I think that's fantastic. And that's the right way. But how many people do you know that call themselves voluntarists that vote? I know, I know at least hundreds, you know, I mean, I don't know how many volunteers there are in the world, but I, I mean, I guarantee you a, a very, very large majority. I, I bet a majority of them do, but the person who originally came up with the term, you know, he says, no, 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 this is we're we're going to use the term voluntarist. I I'm going with this term because I don't want to be a libertarian because libertarian somehow can, can assume, even though there's problems around that ter the term libertarian as well, uh, really recommend some of LA Rollins works. If you want to look into that. But, you know, with voluntary, he's like, I want to call myself a voluntarist because I want to make it expressly clear that we do not engage in electoral politics. Well, now you have not thought leaders in power, but thought leaders uh, in a position in a very small movement and a movement that basically doesn't even really exist anymore. Who, you know, co-opted the term and just decided to go ahead and do their own thing with it and still call themselves voluntarists and represented in such a way. Well, on a grander scale and in a scale that has far more sway and far grander reach, this is exactly what has happened with the framing of this concept of like communism versus capitalism or Marxism versus capitalism. And sticking with those terms, if people want to stick with those terms, you could say, well, that allows us to easily express one thing to another. No, I don't think so. I think they, they absolutely, all of those terms get in the way of what's at the heart, you know, of what surviving, thriving, and being free actually mean. And you can go back and you can see this where, where they are totally, totally framing this. 
And is there a grand conspiracy in the way that they're framing it to try and keep people, you know, to fighting over over the, these cultural concepts? I, I I don't know if I'd go that far, but, you know, certainly there was the way that Russia framed capitalism as being an evil thing. And there is, I mean, and, and it goes both ways. But we're so stuck because we like these simple terms and so many of us are just trying to survive. We don't want to have to think too hard about a lot of this shit that we just, you know, go ahead and listen to the people who uh, maybe have a louder voice that say, oh, yes, capitalism is this. Or, you know, you have on the other side, oh, yes, communism is this wonderful, blah, 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 you know, and they just have they have no idea. So anyway. Side tangent there, but just hilarious that now they're going after the anti-capitalists again, which basically, I mean, that kind of rhetoric from the Pentagon. Now, I mean, if you want to get conspiratorial, I think this definitely plays into, and since this was, I, I would dare say, in motion since at least 2015, okay, because we do have leaked videos previous that very much highlight uh, a lot of what JLAS is about right? JLAS 2018 from previous. Um, this narrative I think was absolutely used, uh, by the state to, you know, this is how they probably convinced or part of whether they consciously realize it or not part of how they convinced a lot of say those same libertarians to somehow fall for voting for Trump or for thinking that Trump was somehow going to be a good thing. Because, you know, there, there was this, this, this low key anti-capitalism concern narrative that the Pentagon was already working on. Anyway, let's keep going because I don't want everything to be so goddamn depressing in life. Even though it seems that way, doesn't it? Uh, the war game continuing, uh, the war game was conducted by students and faculty from the U S military's war colleges, uh, the training grounds for prospective generals and admirals while it explicitly while it is explicitly not a national intelligence estimate, the war game, which covers the future uh, through early 2028, is, quote, intended to reflect a possible depiction of major trends and influences in the world regions, end quote, according to the more, more than 200 pages of documents. According to the scenario, many members of Gen Z, psychologically scarred in their youth by 9-11 and the Great Recession, crushed by college debt and disenchanted with their employment options, have given up on their hopes for a good life and believe the system is rigged against them. Yes, it is. <laughs> Reading on, here's how the origin, but of course it's rigged against all of us. Here's how the origins of the uprising are described. Quote, both the September 11 terrorist attacks and the Great Recession greatly influenced the attitudes of this generation in the United States and resulted in a feeling of unsettlement and insecurity among Gen Z. Although millennials experienced these events during their coming of age, Gen Z lived through them as part of their childhood, affecting their realism and worldview. Many found themselves stuck with excessive college debt when they discovered employment options did not meet their expectations. Gen Z are often described as seeking independence and opportunity, but are also among the least likely to believe there is such a thing as the American dream and that the system is rigged against them. Uh, frequently seeing themselves as agents for social change, they crave fulfillment and excitement in their job to help, quote, move the world forward, end quote. Despite the technological proficiency they possess, Gen Z, this is, I love this part, Stanley breaking in, I love this part. Gen Z actually prefer person-to-person -person contact as opposed to online interaction. They describe themselves as being involved in their virtual and physical communities and as having rejected excessive 
consumerism. So what you're reading here, and that's that's the end of, I mean, again, it's 200 pages, uh, but th- but that's the end of what the the, the, the intercept was showing off here. Uh, basically, every part of the system, they're saying this generation just isn't going to buy into. And as I think we can clearly see in a lot of entertainment and, of course, in the, you know, in the media and so on, um, you know, the quality, both of, say, the journalism, the reporting or the storytelling or, you know, whatever, basically whatever ends up on these screens is so subpar. I mean, it is no shock. It is no shock to me. And I, I don't want to get lost in entertainment again, but I mean, I'm just bringing it up. And, and it, there is, you know, the entertainment industry does paint a picture of culture, whether it's its picture that it wants you to believe or the opposite, whatever. It does paint a picture. It is no surprise to me that I suddenly, of all things, am seeing people who are clearly in their early 20s or teens wearing Def Leppard shirts. Or hell, ironic, or Led Zeppelin, or whatever. They're all wearing shit from 30, 40 years ago. Why? Because they know it's real. They know that there's there's something. Uh, I, I bring up this, this, this lyric many times. Okay, you want to fucking laugh about it being Bon Jovi? Go ahead, fucking laugh. Give me a goddamn break. His point was spot on. He was talking about the last man standing. It's a song all about, I think it's actually about Bob Dylan, but it's the last man standing. And it's all about, you know, it's ripping on digital downloads and all this other crap. And there's a point where he's saying where the, you know, come see this musician play. And he says his words, he's talking about the musician. His words were more than music. They were pictures of his soul. And with everything, just feeling so cheap, fake, programmed, by the numbers, and electroplated. I am not surprised that young people, and, you know, they look to their parents and their parents don't have any fucking answers for what's going on. They just look to find something that they consciously or unconsciously recognize this is something human. This is something real. And they want that. They are not buying into what's getting sold to them because they know that there's nothing in it, that it that it's empty. The one fortunate thing that I see a lot on Twitter, I mean, mainly on Twitter, I see a lot of stupidity. Mainly on social media overall, I see a ton of stupidity. But one of the things that is happening that I think is, is really, really solid and great and definitely speaks to what the Pentagon was worried about here is that... These people recognize that what a lot of like the, you know, what, what corporations and everything are doing in response to BLM and whatever else, they recognize that it's all, it's empty. Like it's just, it's just bullshit, you know, consumerist response that I I mean, like it has no meaning that they're just, they're trying to stay relevant and they do really seem to recognize that. So the Pentagon's concern here is that, well, we have this up and coming generation. Um, They don't believe in government. They think the system is rigged against them. They don't believe in God. So we can't control them with religion and they're not buying into consumerism. So fuck, you know, the economy is going to tank. I mean, the economy is already a a total fiction. Every economy in the world is a complete fiction. Okay. But you know, they're, they're, they're realizing that no, 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 that that's all crap. I don't want it. 
This is powerful. Even if it's, you know what, even if it's, let, let's say that the Pentagon, you know, maybe, or maybe in your experience, you've hung out with a lot of people that are born, you know, post 96 or whatever, right? These Gen Zers, ooh, you always got to love how, how in the media, you know, the, the, the up and coming generation is consistently demonized. It always is. Maybe your experience is, is like, no, I, I think these Gen Zers are totally into consumerism. They're totally into this. They're totally into that, blah, blah, blah. Well, it doesn't take the majority of them to be into it. It takes, I mean, depending upon what, what kind of like influence metrics you, you want to pay attention to, really, it only takes 10% of the up and coming generation to not buy into government, religion, corporatism, consumerism, etc. To make the whole thing really fall and fail. And they're terrified of this. You know, and I mean, you look at how many stories, I, you know, I'm glad we don't know like the average age of people that hold cryptocurrencies. I mean, we have some self-reported stuff. Sure. I'm glad we don't know because I, I don't necessarily want that information, but I would not be surprised if the average age of people that hold cryptocurrencies is like 20 or 21 or something like that. I, I can't confirm that. I don't know that for sure. Um, I can say anecdotally that when I have seen cryptocurrency trades go down, that 90% of those trades, and we're talking, you know, five, six years ago, not, not when, not when Bitcoin is order of the day, back when it was still very niche and a very, you know, very small crowd, very small crowd, you know, where there weren't even Bitcoin events yet. And, you know, people were trading with, you know, whatever local BTC and whatever else, you know, um, or local Bitcoin, I should say. The, I mean, the, the, it was college kids. Are they going to buy drugs? Well, yeah, sure. But I mean, the bottom line is, is that they were recognizing, hey, the system isn't letting me have a good time. I will use the technology that's going to, uh, you know, allow my happiness. And all I can do is a slow clap. Anytime I saw that happen, regardless, I mean, I'm, I don't give a shit about drugs. I, you know, I'm not a proponent of any kind and whatever, but I mean, I'm certainly a proponent of happiness. A zealot for happiness, quite frankly. And I think they realize that, 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 that they're, you know, the system overall is getting in their way. It is between them and their actual happiness. It is between them and a feeling of fulfillment that no other institution, that no institution offers them anymore because, you know, everything that, ha I mean, and the, the media you know, the news organizations and news outlets and everything. I mean, they're completely complicit in this because they've been trying to manufacture and foment uh, debates, fake debates, kind of like we were talking about between Marxism and capitalism. They were trying to foment, uh, you know, well, be concerned, uh, not just like having you watch sports and like root for your team and blah, blah, blah. But they were, you know, trying to say, oh, this is what you need to get outraged about today. This is what you now this is what you need to get outraged about and back and forth and back and forth. And it's gotten to the point now to where, I mean, I, what I saw it in Harper's Harper's fucking magazine was writing, Hey, we're going a little too far here with wanting to like cancel everything. And with wanting to like, say, we can't use this word anymore. F fucking Harper's. No, you tried, you were, your news cycle relied upon you constantly outraging per people about this person, this word, this thing that happened, blah, blah, blah. And now everybody's realizing, Hey, whoa, wait a minute. 
what's left and there's nothing left. And so now they know now they're pointing the fingers. I mean, basically Harper's the, you know, news industry, whatever they wanted to be able to be, to tell you, they wanted to point the finger where you, they wanted to show you where you needed to point the finger. The problem is now is that because all of this is, is just this, this pot has come to an absolute boil. Now everybody's pointing the finger at the news industry or at these corporations or whatever else. And now they're freaking out. And now, because again, their, their game came to bite them right in the ass. And is that, you know, is that attitude of, Hey, wait a minute. Like, what have you guys been doing for the past 10 years? Is that attitude going to come back? And is that going to affect, um, you know, uh, government, corporatism, consumerism, religion, and everything else? Yeah, probably. But let me keep reading the story here. Um, Punched up. Okay. So in early 2025, a cadre of those disaffected Zoomers, I guess that's what they're calling. You know, that's actually the perfect name for Gen Z Zoomers, right? Because they're having to live their lives on Zoom, which I'm sure that pisses them the fuck off and rightfully so, or hopefully, I don't know. You, you know, actually, I, I don't know. Maybe I kind of wonder about that. I wonder how like the real Gen Z, like people that, you know, like in high school and that much younger, how much they're enjoying this. Um, because I, I mean, I think a lot of the people that are basically drinking in front of their webcams on zoom and having all this stuff, I mean, they're, they're kind of the older generation or older generations. I, I wonder anyway, that, that's an interesting thing, but that, that's a side tangent. We don't need to go on. Um, so yeah, a cadre of these disaffected zoomers launch a protest movement movement beginning in quote parks, rallies, protests, and coffee shops and quote first in Seattle, then New York city, Washington, DC, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Austin, a group known as Zebellion begins a quote global cyber campaign to expose injustice and corruption and to support causes it deems beneficial end quote. Uh, you know, what's funny about this <laughs> Stanley breaking in, you know, with this concern, it's almost like the Pentagon knows that it engages in injustice and corrupt and, and is corrupt, right? <laughs> it's kind of inherent if they're thinking that they need to put it down. Anyway, <laughs> reading on during face-to-face -face recruitment, uh, would be members of Zebellion are given instructions for going to sites on the dark web that allow them to access sophisticated malware to siphon funds from corporations, financial institutions, and nonprofits that support quote, the establishment end quote, the gains are then converted to Bitcoin. <gasps> And distributed to, quote, worthy recipients, end quote, including fellow Zebellion members who claim uh, financial need. Zebellion leadership says this. I mean, it's not like any of those groups that they listed off didn't steal the money in the first place. Oh, no, no, of course not. Anyway, <laughs> so we got a Robin. Well, actually, they're just about to say Robin Hood. I was just going to say it's a Robin Hood situation. They're just about to use that in the in the article. Uh, Zebellion leadership uh, says the scenario assures its members that their Robin Hood-esque wealth redistribution is not only untraceable by law enforcement, but, quote, ultimately justifiable, end quote, as targets are selected based on, quote, secure pulling of network delegates, end quote. Although its origins are American, by the latter 2020s, Zebellion activities are also occurring across Europe and cities throughout Africa, Asia, the Middle East, including uh, Nairobi, Kenya, uh, Hanoi, Vietnam, and Amman, Jordan. Uh, in the world of JLAS 2018, Gen Z's most militant members have essentially taken to privately taking large corporations or taxing large corporations and other institutions to combat income inequality, or as the war gamers put it, using the quote, cyber world to spread a call for anarchy and quote, Whoa. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but this sounds great. 
Get to it, kids. You know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> You're going to do a lot better than previous generations. If, if this is, if you are actually going to engage in this in the way that, that J last 2018 is scared to death that you will, let me assure you, these are the very concepts, the very notions, the very ways that actual change can happen. That sovereign tech has been espousing for a decade now. And Satan bless you for engaging in it. In my opinion, I'll bless you if that means anything. Cyber world to spread a call for anarchy. Fuck yes. What's equally amazing. And I've read some more of these, these pages. I haven't read all 200, but what I've could, what I could find I've read is that at least the Pentagon, whether or not generation Z or the zoomers, um, will recognize it, but at least the Pentagon seems to be aware that they uh, they know the underlying philosophy behind a lot of this peer-to-peer technology, behind Tor, behind Bitcoin, or the philosophy that they can potentially espouse in any case. And make no mistake, it is worthwhile pointing out that they are concerned over the use of of alternative internets here. So if you're thinking that, oh, well, you know, we don't, we don't need that or, you know, what, well, if we're going to make any change, we got to do it on the big internet. No, clearly not. Real change is going to happen elsewhere. And that's what the Pentagon's afraid of. Let's read on the J last war game emerges in the, you know, I mean, the, all right, hold on. Cause the funny thing here too, who are they worried that they're going to help? The disenfranchised, the poor, the, I mean, do, do, do you realize this, that they are demonizing what this Zebellion is going to do and Zebellion, they're not going to help terrorists. They're not going to help this and that. They're going to help the people in fucking Africa. They're going to help the fucking poor people, the homeless and so on. And they're saying that's a bad thing. Are you looking around like I am right now? What more proof do you need that the government is not on your side? Their own war games prove the point. And they are increasingly afraid that the up and coming, whatever that happens to be at the time. I mean, millennials have been, and, and I've certainly engaged my fair share of, of uh, even though I'm technically a millennial, I've, I've certainly engaged in my fair share of, of denigrating them. Uh, I mean, are constantly being denigrated, attacked in the news and everything because, I mean, they got to keep getting put down and that somehow they're idiots. That way they are demonized and seen as some kind of great evil because if you just listen to what these fucking people had to say. Oh shit, they might speak out against the establishment. They might, they might strike the root. <gasps> the way that, I mean, the big, you know, I could keep reading about this here, but the biggest takeaways from this whole thing, I mean, and is Gen Z going to do it? I don't know that there's any guarantee that they're going to do it. Who knows? You know, this stuff can, can, can shift. The only reason I have any hope that this might actually occur with quote unquote Gen Z is because, and the generational stuff is, is kind of nonsense, but whatever, like they love to, to, I mean, it's just another form of separation, but regardless, the only hope I have in that is that people really are starting to call out the media. And that's, in my opinion, that's the first people you've got to attack that you've, you've got to, and I don't, and I mean peacefully, okay. That you need to philosophically mentally attack and get them, get them out as the spooks that they are 
as the propaganda men that they are. Toss in your social media influencers with that. Same crowd these days. But get the get that get the misinformation out of the way. And then implement these technologies. All of the above, everything that got listed off here by Zebellion. Using Bitcoin, fuck yes. Using Tor, fuck yes. Go down the doing things face to face. You know it's funny. Ellen and I, we've been, uh, I've been rewatching for, I, I've lost count. Um, but I have been, we've been watching Babylon five. And of course, longtime listeners of Sovereign Tech know I, I run an ad I, over the years off and on. I run an ad where it says it's the greatest show in television history. Well, guess what? It fucking is. Uh, and, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to convince Ellen of that too. Uh, she's nodding her head right now. So anyway, <laughs> so there you go, folks. Rounding endorsement, uh, from Gen Z or no, no, you're, you're a millennial, right? Yeah. She's not. All right. Sorry. Anyway. So there you go. If you're a millennial, all right, Babylon 5 is still the greatest show ever. We'll get Gen Z on that too. But it's 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 interesting that there is a political conspiracy that's going on in this show, okay, on Babylon 5. And it's interesting that the the people who are on the, I guess, you know, by the show's narrative, the good side, okay, which they are, they're the heroes, okay, within the show. They do not, they are always, if they are talking over an open channel, even though we talk about how, oh, gold channel is encrypted and everything on Babylon 5, you know, in that universe and Earth Force and everything, right? They talk about how all these communications are encrypted, which, I mean, the show came out, you know, in 93, 94. Um, so it's it's a little bit ahead of the curve on a lot of that as far as, you know, how communications would work. But it's interesting that when it's something to that has to do with the conspiracy, you know, happening in the government and blah, 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 I don't want to necessarily give anything away, but... The, the, the rebellious heroic characters know that even though they have encrypted communications, they still, whenever they're doing a meeting to share information or to get a briefing or an update, they, they have to meet in person. And I don't mean just on board Babylon five, people take ships from earth to go to Babylon five, however fuck long that takes. And they have, they have to have meetings in person and they set up like a little field to where it would disrupt, uh, you know, any listening devices or recording devices or anything like that. And I, I mean, it's perfect how they got that at a time when it would have been completely justified for Straczynski to think, oh, no, no, you know, we'll develop technology where communications are encrypted and nobody would have to worry about it. And you could, uh, you know, genuinely speak privately without uh, the military or governments or whatever, you know, listening to you. Oh, no, 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 no. They know better. They he knew better. And I think he was right on for showing that even 200 years in the future, if you want to keep something actually private, if you actually want to have a secret, you have to meet face to fucking face. And interestingly, this also proves that point. Okay. It proves the point because that's what the Pentagon is scared to death of is that Gen Z is going to want to meet face to face. Now we can't track them. Shit. They might not be carrying smartphones with them. <gasps> I mean, you could just, and, and you know, one of the best things out of this, I just love, I love reading the fear on the page, the fear that the, the Pentagon and the government has. Over the fact that people can finally, like, you know, take their destinies in their own hands with some of the, with some of this technology, not the technology that that's on TV that you're told to use, not the technology that Facebook tells you to use or that, you know, Google tells you to use or that Apple fucking tells you to use. Okay. None of that. No, the real stuff, the real goods, the open source stuff. I mean, when we did episode 200, my point at that for that entire episode was that the open source movement had finally won and it had. Okay. But now you got to take advantage of it. It absolutely has one. We've made that point throughout 2020 as well, years later. 
but you've got to take advantage of it. And the Pentagon is scared to death that you can. That's the takeaway here. It's a good message. It's a hopeful message. It's telling you what to do, how to do it, how this works. And frankly, it's proving a lot. It's basically proving almost everything that Sovereign Tech has been saying for nearly a decade. Totally right. That this is how it's done. This is what can work. I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Get to it, folks. watch Sequest by downloading it from your favorite torrent site or getting it on glorious DVD. For beneath the surface lies the future. Your questions. The man of tomorrow's answers. Email questions at SovereignTech.com Time for important messages. It is time for important messages. Uh, of course, you know how to get in touch with me, whether you're in the Telegram group, the email you just heard, or even on Twitter. Plenty of people that DM me there. Uh, my DMs are open, so you're welcome to uh, to do so. Of course, Twitter is at Sovereign Tech. Um, got a great question here. Uh, a little different fare than I usually get. But while we're talking about the future and in talking about the future, taking a little look at the past, uh, which is what I'm going to do partly with this. Um, I think this is really, really great, uh, really a great question. And and so I want, I want to address it. It's a little lengthy. We're going to read it. It's from the Telegram group um, and it, from a great listener, absolutely great listener. And uh, just, just brilliant. Anyway, here we go. Uh, at, uh, sovereign, he usually calls me Dr. S, but anyway, <laughs> at sovereign, uh, for better or worse for the local quote unquote corner, uh, small business, do you see a change in the way, uh, they optimally design their websites in light of the pandemic, say your local plumber or home builder? Uh, I am thinking the idea is to substitute or complement in-person or on the phone interaction with online engagement basically trying to build the online equivalent of a brick and mortar salesperson's may I help you. Uh, historically, these small businesses design their websites as online brochures. Uh, I'm thinking the small biz of the near future might be best served to design their website primarily for engagement and to demonstrate their uh, topical expertise and connectedness without being overbearing. So I imagine a website with more integrated chat slash click to zoom call uh, slash or yeah, click to zoom call or yeah, click to zoom call slash links to social media accounts, uh, more use of forms or wizards for self-service uh, funnels, micro purchases, eBooks, online scheduling, etc. The ones that do well will connect site visitors with real people plus content and not uh, annoying bots uh, or canned content. Um, if you're selling physical products, it would allow delivery slash pickup. Um, this is a great question. I mean, we could get into what a lot of businesses that I know pre pandemic 
relied upon door to door. A lot of those have switched to doing SEO, right? Just figuring out how can they get to the top, uh, you know, on search. And that way, you know, that, that way that, uh, that they show up and because they recognized that while we're not going to be able to do door to door or door to door is not going to be the same thing anymore. And even if somebody's having a mask over their face and believe me, I've talked with these companies. Okay. They have asked me the questions on these things. So you're kind of coming to the right guy. Cause I do have a, you know, in some ways, I mean, sovereign tech is absolutely my life, my main gig. This is what I live and breathe. Uh, but I do have side gigs in PR where my technical expertise comes to fore. And, uh, you know, and, and there are companies of varying scales it's from the biggest to the smallest that appreciate that. And I'm honored. So I do have some insight in this. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think social media is necessarily the place really Twitter very much admittedly. And I've said this before, Twitter has become customer service for a lot of things. Okay. And that's ultimately, I feel like what a lot of Twitter just flat out is it's customer service for the entertainment industry, businesses, uh, even government, you know, go down the list. I mean, it really has just turned into a giant, you know, window for, for, for customer service. Um, but it's very difficult to manage, you know, and, and to, to handle all of that. Uh, but that is that, that's certainly a direction to look at. Not everybody has a Twitter account yet. Um, but if you were wanting to be ready for the future, I think that that's a place to make sure that you're positioned at, because I'll tell you, I think sooner or later, just a, just a prediction. I think that Twitter is basically going to become by default. It's going to more or less become a public works. I really do. Uh, I, I mean, I, th I think it's going, you know, it might have some kind of private sheen, but the way that it has become so integrated with electoral politics, with government, um, you know, it, it's, it's maybe just not there in name only yet, you know, like Twitter is not going to die tomorrow. There, there's just, there's just no way because politicians just have too much fun with it, frankly. <laughs> yeah. So that's where I would be looking. And basically what I'm suggesting is, is that more or less when it does become public works or, you know, as say a previous generation may, you know, die off or whatever. Um, I think people are going to, if they're not going to be forced to have a Twitter account, they are certainly going to be more inspired too, as is already happening. Okay. So that is definitely an area really to, to take advantage of as far as customer service goes. Um, the real answer here, I think for what a local corner small business could do, the real answer here, the answer actually existed like, like 20, over 20 years ago, like 25 years ago, QuickTime VR by Apple. Now, no, look, no, 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 this isn't virtual reality. It's not VR. Relax. It was not originally virtual reality. All right. Because, and now I mean, virtual reality, like, you know, something like HoloLens, I mean, that would certainly help, right? Where you absolutely, you have people remotely. I mean, I'm not, I'm not on board with that future necessarily that runs into all kinds of problems, but basically that if you were allowed to develop, you know, an entire store within HoloLens, right. And websites became, you know, virtual reality stores effectively. Okay. That would solve a lot of this where you would have your workers who would traditionally be customer service in a virtual space could actually walk up to somebody. Right. And ask them, how can I help you? And could set up delivery and so on and not being one of not be one of those annoying chatbots. I think the worst thing that a that a small business can do is pop-ups. 
people are just blind to them and done with them as far as I can tell. So I, I would not recommend, you know, going, going with the pop-ups at all, because I think people just can't wait to get rid of them. And they even look negative negatively upon companies that do that. Like when a little chat will pop up or, you know, something along those lines. But I think, you know, the real solution would have been, I mean, QuickTime VR, you have to understand, this is basically an interactive photograph. That's really all it is. All right. It's it's somewhat 3D, you know, on a two-dimensional screen. But that concept, the only reason I think QuickTime VR did not basically become the internet is because Apple charged exorbitant royalties and exorbitant prices to develop these interactive photographs. I mean, you can go look up about QuickTime VR and read about it. Okay. It's very, very interesting technology. And ultimately a lot of what Google and you know, what, what we are seeing, what we are being schlepped off by Facebook and Google and whoever else as being virtual reality on the internet, isn't really any different than, you know, it's just an aggrandized version of QuickTime VR. It It hasn't really changed. You know, we don't really have immersive environments yet. Not really. So, QuickTime VR would have really been the solution for this, where you would basically go to a website and that website, you would be clicking through like it was an actual store, right? It would be actual photographs of the store of your stock of, you know, of all of this, blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, and, and it wouldn't, Apple made it expensive. If, if they didn't have this, this dumbass royalty fees and everything else involved with it, and it was just more of an open technology. Uh, I think the internet probably would look like a bunch of basically like websites would basically be QuickTime VR, the whole thing. And people would, and, and technology, and it would be so inexpensive today. I know I'm not giving you a practical answer here. I'll give you some, but um, it would be so inexpensive today. Like you'd have 360 cameras that you would just set up in the morning or at any given point And boom, it would just take a snapshot of everything in your store. Right. And you just, you walk around, take that snapshot. It might even allow for like, if you had really, uh, you know, if you had barcodes or whatever, you could be taking stock at the same time, you know, for your, your end of week reports and everything. Um, I mean, there, there's so much that could have been done with this, uh, because you're totally right. Basically what people have been doing for business online has more or less been just putting, you know, inter somewhat interactive brochures known as websites. And that's not enough um, at all. Okay. The hard part is for any small business. I mean, one of the real solutions here, there, there needs to, there should be a search engine that concentrates and Craigslist kind of does this, but there should be search engines that concentrate on local areas like a, like hundred mile radius and so on, or that somehow could, and, and Google can claim that they do this, but they don't really do it well. Um, that's kind of, I think the, the real issue here, because ultimately the best thing you can do is SEO, but then there's no reason for the plumber down the street. I mean, because SEO is such a nasty game on Google, it kind of defeats its own purpose. You really should have a search engine that is very specific and easy to use for your local area, right? And every local area should have some kind of maintained, uh, search engine to where that would allow you to find, you know, who is in the area. Um, and you could kind of work from there and you could set up, you know, very easy ways. I mean, basically people just don't want to, they really don't want to click through a bunch of sites. They don't want to do a bunch of research. That's, that's just proven by the fact that most people won't go past the first page of Google. 
right? So you've got to meet them in a forum is my bottom line. I, I mean, I tried and I have espoused for many, many years that, you know, yes, everybody should have their own website, have your own little fiefdom on the internet, whatever that you take people to, but people don't do that. They won't go there. They just won't. Okay. You got to meet them where they are and they are going to be, you know, they are victims. And I do say victims, they are victims of the network effect. And so you've got to meet them on their platforms. Does that mean use Facebook? Not necessarily, because I think Facebook is changing so dramatically. People are just running away from it. And there's just a lot of, a lot of, you know, detesting of Facebook. But of course, once you hook them on the forum, um, then, you know, then you get them to your site. And when they get to the site, uh, yeah, the, the line of communication has to continue. What that really looks like. I mean, there's the way that, that, you know, <laughs> there's the way that sovereign tech would want to do it right in, in, in its dream future, but that's not the real world. And in the real world, yes, you, you want to set up, uh, it can't be bots, right? It can't be annoying chat bots. It's gotta be people that, you know, that, that know, uh, the business, and that can talk like experts because that's ultimately what concludes a sale in a brick in an actual brick and mortar local store is that you believe the person who's selling knows what they're talking about. And you've got to present that on the page. Traditionally that's done with blog posts, right? Long form blog posts that, that even if people don't read the whole damn thing, while this is very lengthy, they must know what they're talking about because they can talk about it ad nauseum. Um, but creating some form, you know, some form of chat with that. Uh, I mean, interestingly, I don't think the internet could really handle this bandwidth <laughs> as a whole. Um, but setting up, you know, using something like Google Meet, where, you know, on the site where you quickly get into, uh, you know, a video chat, where at the very least you get to see the person at the store, I think would be probably the closest you could get to this. Um, and that way they know they have your attention and it's not a bot. And, you know, I mean, you could still put people on hold if you need to or whatever, but I think somehow taking advantage of something along the lines of Google meet zoom, maybe I don't know, Skype, you know, something like that is where, where people don't have to install it necessarily, or it's something that everybody already has, which basically everybody already has. Almost everybody has Google meet or something along those lines. That that would be the best bet if you could somehow get people into that scenario. Okay. Um, or where you could very quickly set up a calendar invite, right? That goes to their email address. And then you could have, you know, the meeting on Google Meet because Google Calendar, the calendar invites will automatically integrate Google Meet. Obviously, you know, on a sovereign tech level, I don't I don't recommend using Google, but again, we're talking real real, real world here. Um, and I do think that in a pandemic situation, you still need to develop at least some of the trust that comes with seeing another human being. And so somehow creating that, I mean, that's kind of a way of getting to where, like what I was talking about earlier, where QuickTime VR would have really been the solution. Okay. And again, QuickTime VR in the nineties was a faux VR. It wasn't really virtual reality, but you, you, you know, you get the idea the, the, the basic concept. Um, but that's, that's what I would do. Figure out a way. And I haven't seen it yet, nor have I really seen anybody try, but probably figure out a way to get like Google meet or something along those lines to where you can have 
a video conversation, even if it's just one way, even if you're the only person on video. And even if you give the, and it'd be, it's best if you give the customer the option to either talk audio or video if they wanted to really, or, um, you know, or talk via chat and having this again, using something again, like Google meet would allow for where they could take, say with like, say with a plumber where you have a lot of options where you could either take a picture and share a picture, right. Of the problem. And then it could get diagnosed right while they're on. Okay. Or, um, you know, you are, you are able to, because you have your phone with you. Uh, and I know in Android 11, this is going to become a thing in Android 11, the ability for apps to readily access an API that can use all of the cameras, you know, front and back and whatever else. And if there's 20 of them on the back, I don't know. Uh, but they're going to have an API, you know, in Google in Android 11, where it allows you to allows an app, an app to access all those cameras all at once. You don't have to flip between them. It can just access, access them as needed. And so for, you know, in the case of like the handyman of any stripe, uh, that would become incredibly handy pun intended. Uh, so doing something like that via your website, I think is really, cause that solves the issue of, yep, you get them to the website and then that website can bring, you know, you, you can implement the API in the website itself to where it can bring up a service that they already have. Again, you got to meet them where they are. Right. And so this is kind of a hybrid solution as far as that goes. Um, and allowing for that, I would also, frankly, I would allow, if you could figure out a way to allow for, uh, a voicemail. Um, I think that's a powerful, powerful tool, uh, to, to take advantage of because a lot of people can't really type out what they want, but they can easily say it. So giving them as many communication options as possible front and center on the website that you lead them to, I think is, is really, really key here. I hope this gives some ideas, uh, you know, of where this can go. Some of this technology might not be there yet, but it is awfully near especially where we're at. And so looking for it or clamoring for it, you know, uh, might bring it to you. And if you're ahead of the curve on that, people are going to get a customer service experience that is truly 21st century, right? That they're not getting anywhere else. And if it's on the local level and the local level is doing a better job of customer service than, you know, some giant franchise or chain that hasn't thought about this and they're completely reliant upon them showing up as number one in Google, uh, you've got a hell of an edge on them. And that is, that is absolutely key, you know, is to have that edge over the franchises right now, any edge you can have over the franchises, anything that makes it more personal, you've got to be doing as a mom and pop shop today. It's, it's just, it's, it's essential because otherwise you are going to get wiped out. I mean, it's already happening widespread. So local business. Yep. You know, make it a friendly face that maybe they can see around town. And if they do, it's going to create a, you know, connective tissue and a positive association with their interaction via the channel online that you've provided be it Google meet, you know, through Twitter, uh, initially, or, you know, whatever platform, whatever forum initially platform initially, I guess I should say not forum. Um, and you know, and then bring them to the site. So anyway, there, there's your idea, but I'll tell you this, let me give you this one bit of advice. And I've given this advice to companies, multi-million dollar companies. Okay. And they've taken it and they've won. I've already seen it happen. If you're going to have an online presence, your business, do business, stay the fuck out of the culture war, just do business. Okay. 
that is going to staying out of the culture war. It's not a matter of that. You're going to piss off. All right. With, with whatever you're doing, like don't, don't put on, look, I, I dig, you know, a lot of what, what BLM is talking about and whatever else I dig a lot of what a lot of the protests are about and everything. Okay. I get it. And I, and when I say, when I am telling a business, Hey, don't put, we support BLM or whatever on their site. That has absolutely, you've, you've got to understand where this is coming from. People get so fucking confused because they think that what I'm suggesting, or they think when some, when a business doesn't do that, that somehow they are not supportive. No, you are wrong. What you are doing as a business, when you do not engage in the culture war and you do not make statements on your site about the culture war or fuck, perhaps even about COVID or whatever. Okay. You are creating an oasis. You are creating a, and I know people will bristle at this, but here we go. You are creating a safe place for people to get their needs met. All right. That's what happens when you do not put messaging on your site, when you do not engage on social media with all the horse shit and crises going on and everything else, just do business, create an oasis where people can get what they want and nothing else. If they want to be friends with you and all this other stuff, you sure you can engage in some of that when you're, you know, maybe doing face to face on a video call with them or whatever. Okay, fine. But as far as on what's just, flat on the page or flat on the, on the social media account or whatever. Don't, don't, don't get into the culture war. Don't do it. Don't, don't buy into the crises. Don't do messaging about the crises. Don't do any of that horseshit. If they want to know how, how you are about it, they can ask you. Okay. Leave it to the customer to do that. The customer knows what they want consciously or unconsciously, and they'll try and get it from you. All right. You just need to create an oasis where they know that their needs are going to get met. That's what that's about. It's not about not, it's not about being unsupportive of whatever's going on. It's not about, you know, being on one side or the other of the whole COVID situation or whatever. It's not about any of that. It has nothing to do with that. It's about, it's about unconsciously creating an oasis for customers. And I think that's exactly what has happened with companies that I have, again, multi-million dollar companies that I have suggested, Hey, this is how you, this is how you should operate. Just play above the whole thing because people will want to do business with you, not because you're not politic, but because, I mean, it is because you're not politic, but it's not because they don't know your politics. It's because, you know, again, it is that oasis of business, oasis of getting things done, oasis of getting what they want. That's key. All right. Anyway, I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Hello, Sovereignati. As you know, Sovereign Tech proudly no longer puts content behind a paywall and makes thousands of hours and episodes available to you totally for free. But if you feel that stirring in your cockles or that special feeling in your heart, I beseech you, nay, I implore you to help the show out by donating. Frequenting our sponsors is key, but donations from listeners like you has always made the show go round and round. You can go to SovereignTech.com to set up an automatic monthly donation, or you can donate via the Bitcoin address in the show notes. And now you can even donate with the Cash app at cash.app and use the money tag Sovereign Tech. So many ways to help out the show, and I'm honored by all of it, allowing us to build and be the future.
Now, let's get back to the show. Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here's your host, Brian Sovereign. Woo, baby! Uh, back end of the show here. And we are going to talk up some gaming and <laughs> some very interesting subjects to get into. And I want to get into multiple uh, subjects here, really. Um, there's some I, I don't really want to touch on right now that are just annoying as fuck that I don't fuck. I don't I just don't understand. Um, like the Smash Brothers controversies going on. And uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get into those. But uh, to talk about. Some interesting, you know, I'm a big fan, really, of a lot of the retro consoles or mini consoles uh, that have come out uh, over the past few years. Um, some more interesting than others. I mean, there's some that I've ducked out on that I was originally very excited about. And then I'm just like, eh, I don't know. And frankly, in many ways, I mean, I got to admit this. In many ways, when you own a Nintendo Switch so much stuff gets ported to that, like so many classics. And it's really the only place you can get uh, the modern M2 Sega Ages releases. That's not to reference the frankly amazing uh, Sega Ages 20, was it Sega Ages 2500? That uh, series that was released in Japan for the PlayStation 2. That's very different. Um, I have some of those games like the Fantasy Star Collection for that is still the best representation um, of those games, but basically just about anything you can think of, you know, I mean, really seems to be getting, if it's not already ported, uh, to the switch, it's going to happen. And, and it almost makes a lot of these retro consoles moot. I mean, it, in, in many ways, um, I still think that they're fun to have, uh, and some of them are very unique. And actually the two I'm going to talk about that are supposed to be coming out are uh, certainly on the more unique side. One of them, I don't even understand why it's happening, but Whatever. Uh, but, you know, before I get into that, a, a subject I did want to get into. And it's amazing that the gaming industry has this is another case where stuff that I have said for a long time on this show, uh, be it on Sovereign Tech or back when the gaming grid was its own show, um, you know, before it got reintegrated into Sovereign Tech. I have been saying for a while that the gaming industry cannot, and I mean for years and years and years, that the gaming industry cannot sustain the budgets uh, that these, you know, that a modern AAA game uh, costs. I mean, they, they just can't. Just like Hollywood has run into a similar issue with their high budget films. You know, like a movie to be considered successful has to do such stupid amounts of monies that literally the movie becomes stupid because you have to make it something that appeals to the lowest common denominator. Now with gaming, it's a little bit different. Um, and the conversation is now finally happening, I guess, partly because 
Maybe the gaming industry is sweating the fact that they don't have an E3 or they don't have other gaming expos to show, show off their wares and whatever else. Um, or probably because, you know, new console generations, PlayStation five and so on are coming up and the conversation is being had. And it looks like some of this might be happening, you know, okay, how do we resolve this issue with budgeting? Because people, in fact, more of that Gen Z stuff that we were talking about earlier aren't falling for, they are, they're calling out electronic arts, you know, EA, whatever company, whatever gaming dev house, major house that's engaging in IAP, insane DLC and a lot of this other stuff or, you know, loot crates and everything and saying, no, you're, you're robbing us. Stop. You know, this is, this is getting stupid. We're not going to buy your games anymore. And that's really happening. And I'm glad to see it. But now, so now the gaming industry is like, okay, well, what do we do here? Do we like lessen the budget on the games or, and this is the direction it looks like they're going, or do we increase the cost of a video game? Now it's interest, interesting to, to think about and point out that, I mean, I can remember the first video game I ever bought with my own money. Um, it was Metroid, the original Metroid for the, for the NES. Okay. And at the time, you know, my birthday money that I got, okay. Uh, when I was a kid, it was $50 that that was my birthday money. And frankly, at the time, I mean, we're talking, it wasn't even 1990, $50 was, was a lot of money, <laughs> you know, like that, 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 I mean, compared to what $50 is today, uh, $50 was quite a bit more, you know, back in the eighties and even in the nineties. So the irony is, is that today, how much does a video game cost? You know, your average AAA title that comes out on launch day, about 50 bucks, maybe 60 bucks, but there were games then, I mean, even then game prices were going up to about $60. If it was a newer release, like I remember spending $60 to buy Mega Man three, the month that it came out. Okay. Now there's some confusing language and conversations around, around all of this because, because of the fact that games and, and I've already had the conversation around like limited run games and their physical shit. Don't, don't, don't no game, no game. You understand unless it's like a niche console of some kind or whatever, no game is truly physically sold anymore. Unless, you know, you're going into the past and previous console generations or something. And, and believe me, I wish games were physical. I'm not saying that I'm glad they're all digital. I'm not glad about it. All right. But no game is because you still, even if you get something from limited run games, there's going to be, unless it's an older game for an older platform, you know, like the Star Wars releases for PC or something uh, or Game Boy or whatever. Um, you know, if you're buying a physical edition of a Switch game you're still going to likely get the patches, right? You're going to get the software updates and everything uh, that come along with it that aren't on the cartridge. Okay. Or the cartridge might not even have the whole game on it. And you still have to bottom line being is that it's still ultimately a digital game. So don't give me, I, I don't want to hear about that. You know, that shit. Cause anyway, the argument going now is that, okay, games need to cost 80 bucks instead of 60, like we've got to, to, to adjust for these budgets or for the, the fact that we can't scam people anymore with loot crates and whatever else we've got to make the extra money somewhere. Now I don't necessarily buy this argument because here's the thing is that while yes, it is interesting that games cost the same dollar amount that they do now, 
that they did 30, 40 years, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. I mean, I can remember even seeing uh, E.T. I think, uh, you know, the, the Atari game E.T. costs like 50, 60 bucks back in the early 80s. You know, I mean, yeah, it is weird that 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 things, you know, cost that much then. And somehow they still cost the exact same that that's, you know, why is that? Right. And that's not counting sales or anything like that, but sales are part of this conversation. I think, you know, a lot of those sales are really only possible because games are not physical anymore. They are completely digital. And so there is no real production cost. And so the pricing of the game can flux dramatically. Right. And of course you make a lot more money off of a sale because it highlights a game that, you know, makes up for the fact that you're not getting the full price for it often enough because you'll get a, you know, greater audience per buying in. So the idea that games need to cost 80 bucks, uh, the, the part that's, that's kind of bullshit about that argument is just that is that no game is really physical anymore. Like there's, there is no production cost as far as like, you know, the actual medium that the game is on. Everything is sent Digitally. Now you could say that maybe the production cost or maybe what used to go into the cost of a CD, DVD, Blu-ray or, or cartridge, um, you know, is now offset by, by server costs, right? How much it, cause I mean, what some of these games, some of these call of duties or battlefields, you get like 80 gig downloads or some bullshit. I mean, it's fucking insane. Um, you know, those that might be offsetting that a bit. And so maybe even though, they don't have to pay for the production of cartridges and discs. They do have to pay more for server space and, you know, and bandwidth and so on. So I guess that could make some kind of sense, but I don't exactly buy it. But the point being is that the idea that games should, I mean, frankly, my answer is that no, like these games shouldn't have these budgets, you know, like it shouldn't be that fucking, you know, insane. Uh, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. The, the model with which, I mean, like a yearly Call of Duty game, that doesn't even make sense. You know, it used to make sense. Like the re yearly releases of games used to basically belong, to, was the purview of sports games. Okay. Because you had new teams every year. And so you wanted to play the latest teams, right? Okay. That makes sense why you would make an entirely new game and there'd be graphical improvements and, you know, and so on. Um, because there is a real world impetus for why you need to do a yearly game. Now it's just a fucking money grab as to where before it was, you know, almost a necessity. Now it's, it's pure money grubbery. I mean, and, and it, it, it's stupid, but regardless, um, games costing more. Ultimately, I don't really have a problem with that. And, and what inspired me to start talking about this right here was the fact that one of the games I mentioned, the Sega ages series, the Sega ages, 2500 series from the PlayStation two. And I mentioned the fantasy star collection. You know, there was a time where, I mean, fantasy star four, which is one of my, probably in my top 10 games of all time, fantasy star four cost a hundred dollars. It didn't come with anything necessarily special, whatever. I mean, there was some uh, extra cost that might've come with, uh, you know, a little extra Ram or whatever they, you know, was on the, in the cartridge or something along those lines. But that game cost a hundred bucks new in, uh, you know, 1992 or three when that came, or maybe it was 94 when that came out. Um, so games costing a lot more and maybe they felt like, well, you know, that's why fantasy star four didn't do great money was because, uh, you know, it was just way too expensive. 
Um, but this idea of games costing more, my whole point in bringing this up is that, you know, that's not really new. And ultimately, I don't really have a problem with that, like with these things really costing more. Um, it is, I, I again, I, I don't know if the server space argument really holds water with me. And here's the thing is that I think ultimately the server space, like the, the concept of digital games is what's also inspiring, like the increase in price, because I think that the way games are produced now, it's not just a matter of digital and physical, the way games are, or should I say not produced, but developed the way games are developed. Now you don't get a finished product when the game releases, you've got tons of patches and a whole other bull and all other bullshit, you know, that, that comes out, you know, months, if not years after the fact, I'm not complaining about getting extra content and everything else, but that used to be, you know, what used to be in gaming was an expansion pack and you'd pay an extra, you know, 10, 20 bucks or whatever for it. Right. And, you know, it might completely revamp and patch parts of the original version of the game, but you still, you ended up paying for it. Um, and so, you know, ironically, you know, to get a full game, it would end up costing more than 50, 60 bucks all the same. So in many ways, you've already been paying a lot more for a game than 50, 60 bucks. So there's not so much of a problem there, you know, with, with the prices needing to get raised. But my concern is, is that they, they're immediately jumping to let's increase the price of games and they are not reassessing the development, you know, the gaming development model and the business model overall in the games industry. That's what bothers the fuck out of me. I'm, I mean, they recognize there's a problem. There's a disparity in, in budgets and pricing and everything else, but they're just going in the wrong direction. And that's really unfortunate. Um, I am not surprised at, you know, the, the rampant popularity of again, the retro consoles that I mentioned, or of the idea that people are buying older consoles. Also you have companies creating little cottage companies or you, you have, you have people creating uh, cottage companies that are selling hardware that allows you to play the class of games or that makes systems better, right? Like was a GC loader or whatever for the GameCube that, you know, replaces the, uh, the disc drive or replaces the optical drive and allows you to play games off of an SD card. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, I already have that kind of setup, but I still have to have the optical drive to put in the action replay disc and whatever, but that's not GC loader. Uh, I wouldn't mind getting my hands on those or like what Terra onion is doing. We've talked about that on, on gaming grid in the past where, you know, they basically put a hard drive completely in place um, of the, uh, you know, the optical drive in older consoles. And that's great. Like I, I'm so supportive of that, but it's amazing how well, those cottage companies are doing. And I think it's because people are just there. There is a large segment of the population of the gaming public, I guess I should say that have just had enough, you know, of, of how complicated it is just to even own a game today. And they want simplicity and they want stuff that's made to last. Ironically speaks very much to our Gen Z conversation that we had earlier. But anyway, you know, speaking of retro consoles, a couple new ones that are coming out, I was going to review, we're running out of time, but I was going to review uh, the release of uh, Duke Nukem 3D, the uh, 20th anniversary world tour edition um, on switch. Uh, but we'll save that for another episode. But I do want to talk about these couple things. First one is the one that I don't understand. 
But Retro Games Limited, who did the C64 Mini, which I've been very positive, very bullish about. I, I think it's a fantastic little system. They're coming out with a VIC-20, and it's full-size. They're not bothering with the Mini. They're going full-size like they did with the C64 Maxi. I'm not exactly understanding what like what what the concept is here uh like like what the like i don't get the why and where this is really that viable like i i don't i so rarely and maybe i just don't know i had a vic 20 when i was a kid but i so rarely well all right there there are whole communities and they're large actually there are whole communities around commodore 64 to this day New Commodore 64 games, Lords of Dragon Spire. I mean, awesome fucking games. Wormhole, go down the list of it, right? Sam's Journey. That, uh, you know, that are still hot, still actively developed, and that people are still on board with and buying. I mean, basically, whenever Cytronic Software comes out with something, the instant they come out with it, I mean, you know, they, their games are anywhere between two to eight bucks. I mean, I buy it in a heartbeat. I haven't even played it yet. I don't care. I just buy it because I'm like, oh, it's so great. And I, lo I love the Commodore 64 community. I rarely see that for the VIC-20. Like, I, I don't see that same community. And I tried looking for it when I first heard about the VIC-20 coming back from Retro Games Limited, where they're doing, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, retro console sorts with it. And I don't get it, but it looks like, based on what information I could find, it can play Commodore 64 games as well. So maybe this is somehow, because the, the C64 Maxi, the full-size version with the keyboard that actually worked, because on the Mini it didn't, the C64 Maxi never made it out of Europe, as I understand it. And I still don't know why that either. And I haven't seen any explanations as to why the fuck we can't get the full-size Commodore 64. I don't know if the VIC-20 is somehow resolving that problem and basically giving every... Because they it says in the advertising that it can play C64 games. You gotta understand, the original VIC-20 only had 5K of RAM. The, the 64 in Commodore 64 stands for 64K of RAM. That's that that's what it's not 64 bit at all, obviously, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're basically eight bit systems. So I don't I mean, I know you could do I remember with Vic 20, you could put in there was like an upgrade cartridge where you could bring it up to 32K. But the Vic 20 could never really play, you know, Commodore 64 games. So, again, I just I don't understand what this product is about. If if it is the solution for getting the C64 Maxi effectively out to the rest of the world. I don't know, because of some naming rights or some horseshit. If, if that's what, or, you know, something to do with IP, if that's what it's about. Okay. Um, great. You know, like then, then I guess I get the point, but I just, I haven't seen any details on this and, you know, people that actually get to interview anybody that really matters, they never get to ask the hard questions or they never bother to ask the hard questions. It's really fucking annoying. So, I mean, and that's why I don't have, I mean, there are people who want to get interviewed on my show a lot of times though, admittedly, like I'll say, well, I'm going to ask you this, I'm going to ask you this. And then they're like, I oh, know I'm not interested. And like, okay. So, you know, you don't want anybody that's actually going to put pressure on you. Great. So why would I do it? Um, but anyway, so that the Vic 21, that's a surprise kind of interesting. Uh, I'll certainly be keeping an eye on it as far as that goes, but the far more interesting one is one that I hope does end up on, uh, shall we say, Western shores, uh, because right now I think it's only set for Japan. Um, not that anybody here would necessarily recognize the system, but Sega has announced that they are coming out with a new uh, retro console or micro console uh, of the Astro City, which is going to have 36 uh, arcade games on it. Now, 
the Astro City, and I think they're calling it the Astro City Mini, kind of like the Genesis Mini or Mega Drive Mini. The Astro City Mini is uh, a mini version of the full-on Astro City arcade cabinet that in Japan, even when I used to go to Japan years ago, you just saw these things fucking everywhere. In every arcade, in, in many businesses, and I mean businesses that you just wouldn't expect to see, like, why is there an arcade cabinet here? Of course, that's true throughout a lot of Japan. But, you know, at restaurants and everything, and they were basically multi-game arcade uh, machines, which not that that's anything new. Neo Geo had similar things and, you know, in, in the United States, uh, like with, you know, Samurai Showdown and, you know, whatever other other game, you know, King of Monsters on them and so on. Um, and speaking of that, this does actually look a lot like the Neo Geo Mini, but apparently the little and it has functional buttons on it, just like the Neo Geo Mini, which is nice. I thought the Neo Geo Mini was a great release. Um, definitely one of the better retro consoles. But this one has, of course, this has six buttons and also apparently the little uh, joystick on it has micro switches. So great. You know, like it's actually far more usable than, say, the one on the Neo Geo Mini. Um, it, but it is it is on the smaller side. Uh, it does have I think it uses USB-C for connecting everything and it has a full size HDMI cable, which, of course, was a little bit of controversy with the Neo Geo Mini because it had a micro uh, HDMI uh, on it. But uh, but that that's a nice touch. There's no word on whether or not it's going to have a battery built into it, as in can it work portably? The Neo Geo Mini, uh, which, which is its nearest corollary, did not, even though you could power that like with, uh, you know, with a little, uh, you know, battery, portable battery, uh, USB battery pack, right? So anyway, some of the games on this, we don't have all 36, but this is, you know, I'm, I'll read you a little bit of the game list. And this is why I want it here, uh, because some of these games are are pure gold. Uh, Alien Syndrome, Alien Storm, Golden Axe, Golden Axe, The Revenge of Death Adder, Columns 2, Dark Edge, Puzzle in Action, Tant R, I don't know that one, but Virtual Fighter, Fantasy Zone, and Altered Beast. Every single one of those games, I don't know Puzzle in Action, but otherwise, every single one of those games is an absolute hit and classic. And we haven't had a great release a modern release of Virtua Fighter, I think pretty much anywhere. I know Virtua Fighter 2, the Genesis version, has been released, uh, you know, in varying collections over the years. But the original Virtua Fighter, which I, to this day, I, I same with like a, a Virtua Racing that, that Sega did as well, that er, those early polygon-based games, graphic-based games that Sega did, I still think look wildly more futuristic, seem wildly more futuristic than any game that tries to look really realistic and have like to where you can't see the polygons anymore. I think seeing the polygons gives it, gives it a very, very interesting. It's a, it's a design, you know, but it, it just, it gives it a look that says, wow, you know, there, there are so many horses behind this that, you know, do you get what I'm saying? I think it's incredible. Uh, so I would, I mean, the original virtual fighter alone, I would love to get my hands on, uh, in a, in a nice portable or a nice, you know, easily plug into the TV fashion. Don't, I know you can have your raspberry Pi, run MAME and blah, blah, blah. Do you know who you're talking to? I know. Okay. I want, you know, this, this nice presentation, this nice package. Uh, so, I hope that again, and, and that's just for starters. Now, if they're going to toss in like Virtual Fighter 2, the arcade version of that, 
Um, as well as even though you can get the Sega ages version on switch of virtual racing. So that's not as important, but I think that that would be an excellent addition to this. Um, I mean, it's, it's a solid buy. It, it goes for about 120 bucks, which is around the range that the Neo Geo mini was at. But I think that that's, I think that's, that's fine pricing. I mean, and it comes with a game pad as well, and you can hook up uh, multiple game pads and so on. Um, but I, I love it. And I, I mean, the other Sega uh, arcade games that could end up on there, sign me up. Like I, 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 I can think of a whole list of, I mean, far more than 36, but there's a whole list of games that I think would be absolutely fascinating, uh, you know, to, to put on there and that would make it a worthwhile purchase. So I'm glad ultimately that retro consoles are still seen as viable. And obviously this is a far better release than the game gear mini, which we talked about in recent episodes. That's just stupid. Uh, but this is a release being done the right way. Um, I, I'm hopeful I mean, the, the, like the biggest thing that, that this says to me, if they are willing to sell, actually, here's the thing. This is true, and, and this really should have been the one positive to come out of the Game Gear Mini. If Sega is willing to bank on the worthwhile uh, uh, release of the Game Gear Mini and the Astro City Mini, if they think those are viable, it's worth it to make these. They have to think that making a Sega Saturn mini would be worth it. They've just, they've got to because combining Astro city, the Astro city, uh, you know, cabinet and the game gear. I don't think even, you know, most people see the Saturn that it wasn't very successful in comparison to like the N64 and the PS one shore, but it did really good selling numbers, especially, I mean, far better than the Game Gear did. Far better. I mean, and Astro City is a different market. I understand that. But bottom line being is that there there is definitely more memories, more headspace, uh, and, and more interest in the Sega Saturn than in either of these two consoles. I mean, most people don't even remember half the games they played on the Game Gear Mini. They remember it. They remember the really tiny screen and that it was backlit when the Game Boy was not and so on. And that it was full color and blah, blah, blah. And they remember that, you know, the batteries, if you're lucky, went 30 minutes. But they don't really even remember the games from it. As to where Sega Saturn, you remember the games. A lot of them, you know, Nights into Dreams. I mean, the, the Sonic games alone, there, there's Burning Rangers. I mean, there's a ton, a ton of uh, Panzer Dragoon, which of course got a re-release, but I, I still think the classic looks a little better, as good as Panzer, the Panzer Dragoon uh, remake is. So I guess my takeaway here is that I think this points out that we just might get a Sega Saturn Mini because Sega is clearly interested in putting out its weird little consoles. Um, and I, I hope the Saturn happens. Not that I need it because I mean, I got my hands on the mode from Terra onion. Uh, it hasn't arrived yet, but those are actually shipping where, you know, I can plug in, uh, you know, a hard drive into a Sega Saturn and I can play every Sega Saturn game ever made, you know, and hook it up to HDMI, the whole thing. Uh, so, you know, I'm, it's not like I need it, but I would love to have that nice, easy package. And I'd love to see, I mean, even I, I think the design Sega did such amazing things with the Saturn and the Dreamcast and the looks of those. And of course, I know that's what a lot of other people would be more interested in as well is, okay, can we get a Dreamcast mini probably coming down the line, you know, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if we get that Saturn mini announcement in pretty short order. But before then, I hope the Astro city, like I said, does end up getting a, you know, a North American at the very least uh, release. 
Uh, or even if it's European, at least then we can buy it from Europe and bring it over and blah, 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 you know, and it'll have English available on it. So, <laughs> so I'll take it just to play Virtua Fighter. I'd, I'd be right there for it. So anyway, uh, that's it for this episode of Sovereign Tech. Uh, I'll wrap it up here. We ended up running uh, a little bit long uh, with, with the gaming grid, which is fine because there's been so much gaming news that I've wanted to talk about. And so I'm glad that we got it in and we'll have more Sovereign Tech coming out very shortly. Feel free to donate to the show if you have that feeling. Just look in the show notes for how to do that. And I will see all of you woo, on the other side. Have some fun with that rebellion, baby. I'll see you on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech. An Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. <laughs> <laughs>